I may be standing at the place where the man in the green pajamas was seen for the very last time on a dark April night in 1959. I'm at the edge of a field just north of Jacksonville, Illinois, a community of about 19,000 people, just west of the state capital of Springfield. This part of town doesn't look much different than it did back in 1959. It's still farmland near the municipal airport, and it's a mile or two from where the old Sandman Motel used to be located on Walnut Street. It was at the Sandman where the man in the green pajamas was staying when he came to Jacksonville. Of course, that wasn't his name. It was Bruce Campbell, and he was a stockbroker from Massachusetts. He came here to visit his son, who was then a professor at McMurray College in town. Bruce's first grandchild had just been born, and it was meant to be a happy time for the family. But it turned out to be a tragic one. As you're about to hear, Bruce vanished from his room at the Sandman Motel one night and has never been heard from again. No one, including his wife, saw him leave the motel that night. No one saw him walk down Walnut Avenue or turn and walk south toward Jacksonville's downtown area. But there may have been someone who saw him on this country road on the night he vanished. To this day, that remains a mystery, but we'll look further into that possible sighting during this episode. This has been one of the tougher disappearances I've ever researched. The official records are gone. The police officers who worked the case retired many years ago, and all have since passed away. Even the Sandman Motel is gone. Casey's convenience store now stands where it used to be. But I can't resist telling the story. When we decided to do a season of the podcast about unexplained disappearances, I knew this one had to be included. Better yet, it needed to be the first one we talked about because this story is one about Jacksonville, a place I call home. The story of the so-called man in the green pajamas has been part of Jacksonville's history for more than 70 years now. Some of the older people around town remember it, or at least remember hearing others talk about it because they were children at the time, but there's no official ongoing case. Bruce Campbell has mostly been forgotten. He was here one day, and then he was simply gone. Is he still out there somewhere? Is his body waiting to be found? Yeah, I believe he is. I don't think he's ever left Jacksonville. In fact, his remains could be within walking distance of where I'm standing right now. Are they? We'll probably never know, but maybe this podcast will encourage someone to look for him again. If nothing else, at least it means that Bruce Campbell will never truly be forgotten. His story is one that we should remember, even if we may never really know the entire truth. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our brand new season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and wonder, bizarre happenings, and unsolved mysteries for which no rational explanation exists. This is especially true when it comes to the unexplained disappearances that we'll be delving into during the season ahead. 
These are the stories of people who vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Such stories are often bizarre, unexplainable, and sometimes seem impossible. But in the end, they're always terrifying too, and for good reason. If the people you'll hear about in the season ahead so easily vanished, then just about anyone can easily vanish too. Maybe even you. You'll want to listen to every episode with the lights on, including this one, which we call The Man in the Green Pajamas. On April 13, 1959, 57-year-old Bruce N. Campbell and his wife Mabelita arrived in Jacksonville, Illinois, for a happy reunion with their son, Bruce Jr. His wife had recently given birth to a baby, a little boy, and the Campbells couldn't wait to meet their first grandchild. Bruce and Mabelita had driven from their home in Northampton, Massachusetts, making a nearly 20-hour trek to Jacksonville where Bruce Jr. taught chemistry at McMurray College, one of the two private colleges in town. Even with an overnight stay along the way, the drive had been a grueling one, especially for Bruce, who was, as his son later said, visibly exhausted by the long journey. He was also described as rational but disoriented by the time they reached their motel that Monday night. Some would blame that exhaustion and illness for what happened next. And that's likely because Bruce Campbell was such an ordinary man. There was nothing about his life, occupation, or place in his community that would suggest he would ever become part of a mystery that has never been solved. Bruce was born on January 25, 1902 in Northampton. His father, Louis L. Campbell, was well-known in town. He'd worked for the railroad for many years and then became Northampton's postmaster for the next 38 years. He was president of the New England Postmasters Association and had addressed the national board on several occasions, including making changes to mail service that were used all over the country. Lewis and his wife, Alice, had two children, Ruth, who was born in May 1899 and only lived for five days, and Bruce. After his retirement, Lewis opened a hardware store. Alice died in 1940, and her husband outlived her by 13 years, passing away in 1953 at the age of 93. Well, Bruce grew up in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in Northampton. After graduating from school, he began working for his father in the hardware business and married Mabelita McLean in June 1930. Two years later, their son was born, and Bruce became a stockbroker for Finald & Company in Springfield, Massachusetts. During World War II, Bruce registered for the draft, but I can't find any record that he ever served. On his draft card, it was noted he was 40 years old, was six feet five inches tall, weighed 180 pounds, and was bald. I would think he would have been pretty far down the line when it came to the military draft, thanks to his age. After the death of his father, Lewis, who had been living with Bruce and Mabelina after Bruce Jr. left for college, Bruce continued to work in the stock investment business. His son moved to Illinois after taking a position as an assistant professor of chemistry at McMurray College. Until the 1920s, McMurray had been the Illinois Women's College, 
but it remained an all-female school until 1957, when the first class of young men were allowed to attend. In April 1959, with Bruce Jr. as successful professor and he and his wife with their first child, the Campbells eagerly made the trip west to see their son and his family, never knowing it would be the last trip they would ever take together. When the Campbells made it to Jacksonville, Maybelita checked them into the Sandman Motel, a small family-owned establishment that was typical of motor lodges of the day. It was located on the north side of town on Walnut Street. Each room had a door that opened to the outside and parking was located right outside the guest's room. Maybelita got in touch with Bruce Jr., who drove out to the motel to see his parents. After seeing that his father was having some confusion and distress from the drive, he called Dr. E.C. Bone, a local physician, and asked him to make a house call. Bruce Jr. later told the police that Dr. Bone gave him some medication to help him rest. Apparently, though, it didn't work. Bruce was upset, restless, even paranoid that night. Maybelita later told the police that twice before 1 a.m. on Tuesday morning, Bruce had awakened her to ask if their station wagon, which was parked right outside the door to the room, was locked. This was unusual behavior for Bruce, but his wife assumed it had something to do with his illness or maybe the sleep medication. So twice she reassured him and told him to go back to sleep. When she woke up next at 2.15 a.m., she saw that the other double bed in the room was empty. Bruce was gone. She immediately got out of bed to look for him, and when she realized he was not in the bathroom, hurried to the door of the room, which was unlatched. There was no sign of him in the parking lot. She ran over to the office, but the desk clerk on duty told her he hadn't seen anyone walk past the office. The Campbell's car was still sitting in the lot. The doors were locked, and it was undisturbed. Because of Bruce's strange medical condition, Maybelita quickly called the police. When officers arrived at the motel, she gave them a description of her husband, tall, bald, and walking with a slight limp. In the motel room, he'd left behind his wallet, all his money, his shoes, his keys, his glasses, and all his clothing. The only items he had taken with him had been his wristwatch, his college fraternity ring, and the bright green pajamas that he'd worn to bed. He should have been easy to spot, but he wasn't. For this part of our story, I enlisted some help. Lauren Hamilton works for the Jacksonville Police Department and is the Crime Stoppers coordinator for the Morgan, Scott, and Cass counties in Illinois. Because there are no officers left who assisted in the search for Bruce Campbell, I turned to Lauren to share with me what he could about the case. So I just put together some questions for him, so we'll have see what he has to say. Um, Lauren, when someone was reported missing in Jacksonville in 1959, do you have any idea how that was handled at the time? I mean, was there a waiting period or was this something officers would have responded to right away? I mean, given the, the circumstances. Right. Well, for such a small department um, as Jacksonville was and is, uh, there really wouldn't have been a, a waiting period. We would have showed up uh, at the hotel we would have uh, interviewed the wife, uh, interviewed the uh, hotel manager, and uh, things of that nature, and, and then uh, a search ensued the next day. Right, right. Okay, so what? So I guess that answers my question as to what would have happened that night. Um, we know that a search was started, but 
you know, and I think Jacksonville, you know, maybe had more people then, but probably wasn't as large of a community as it is now. So how how did they probably handle that as far as thinking he probably didn't go that far? Well, they uh, they did a ground search. Uh, they actually enlisted some of the students from McMurray College to uh, uh, aid in that ground search. Uh, there was a search of Lake Molestar. Um, there was a helicopter search. But I really don't think they went that far out. Uh, from what I understand, they went maybe about a 50-mile radius mm. around Jacksonville okay. and uh, really didn't find anything. I mean, they looked... Again, back at the hotel, they looked at the hotel for signs of a struggle or, or foul play or, or, or what have you, but really didn't find anything like that, and then never found any uh, evidence in the search either. Okay. So what, what would have been, let's say it happened now, mm -hmm. um, you know, if somebody went, went missing from one of the hotels in town now, how, I mean, obviously we have a lot more technology, right. but how would it have be different now if we were right. doing the same thing? Well, um, we would have, again, showed up at the, at the motel. There would have been more extensive interviews, more extensive um, um, collection. Like, we could have took fingerprints, and they might have at that time, too. I don't know. But we would take fingerprints, we would take DNA uh, samples, and we would run those through CODIS, the national database, to see if... Uh, if they would match uh, anyone. We had actually also run those through Ancestry.com to see. I know it's a hotel, but we're process of elimination. We know that we uh, uh, there's going to be other people's fingerprints. There's going to be other people's DNA in the hotel room. But by process of elimination, is there any DNA from anyone that hadn't been checked into the hotel for days, weeks, things of that nature. Um, we would also uh, search the cell phone or, or run the mm. cell phone records. Uh, social media, oh my gosh. We would run uh, subpoenas for email records, social media records, uh, what has the individual uh, looked up maybe in their computer search. Um, so there would be all of those things. Um, we would look at the parking lot because today... Uh, you can't go 20 feet unless you're picked up on ca surveillance mm -hmm. camera somewhere. Sure. So we would do that not only from the hotel itself, but any fuel stations, things like that within the area. Um, so I think it's a lot more difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible by any means, right, right. but it's a lot more difficult to just disappear now. Uh, we would also, uh, of course, run... Uh, the uh, information through all the news outlets, the social media, the Illinois or the uh, Missing Persons Awareness Network. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it would be a lot more difficult to just disappear. During those early morning hours in 1959, police officers searched the area near the motel. The dark residential streets south of the Sandman, the downtown area, and even some of the rural roads that were north of Walnut Avenue. But hours later, there was still no sign of Bruce Campbell. Once the sun was up, word spread. Theories of amnesia, foul play, and suicide led officers to local creeks, alleyways, ditches, back roads, farm buildings, and open wells. 
Jacksonville Police Chief Ike Flynn and Captain Charles Ronkel surveyed the entire area, both in a fixed-wing aircraft and later by helicopter. But they found nothing. The next day, local firefighters joined the search, using a boat to dredge a nearby branch of Movistare Creek. About 150 students from McMurray College joined the search, too. On the third day, the entire 235-member male population of McMurray, students and staff, joined with 50 students from Jacksonville High School to help comb the area again. The massive volunteer search team broke into smaller groups, covered a six-mile radius around Jacksonville, walking through woods, along roads, and checking small creeks and ponds. Most of the searches took place north of town. It was assumed that since there had been no reports of a barefoot man in green pajamas in the residential and business districts, and since the Sandman Motel was on the north side of town, that Bruce likely went north toward the freshly plowed farm fields that were ready for planting. It was a solid plan, but hopes for finding him turned out to be overly optimistic. Not a single trace of him was discovered. If seen, Bruce would have been easily recognizable with his height, limp, and green pajamas, but no one reported seeing them. Not then, anyway. There were dozens of reports of other tall hitchhikers around the area, though, including in towns like Whitehall, Woodson, Murrayville, New Berlin, and Alexander. These reports kept the police busy for days, but led nowhere. None of them turned out to be Bruce Campbell. Police Chief Ike Flynn told the newspaper, we've looked every place that's been suggested and have run out of ideas on what to do next. At some point during the search, a psychic had contacted the department and told the chief that Campbell would be found seven miles north of Jacksonville. Officers searched that area too, but found nothing. I've never been able to discover who this psychic was, but I do believe they may have been onto something. The last solid lead in the disappearance, really just about the only lead, was passed on to the police about one week into the search. A farmer who lived several miles northwest of town told investigators that he had been awakened by shouting on or near his property on the night that Bruce Campbell went missing. The police searched the farm, but didn't find anything. I believe, though, they may have missed something. About a year ago, I was contacted by a former Jacksonville man who had run across some of the things that I had written about this disappearance over the years. He had a story to tell. Now, keep in mind, this is a secondhand story passed on to me by a man who wished to remain anonymous, who heard it from his father, who had owned a farm northwest of Jacksonville in 1959. Apparently, this man's father had been awake during the early morning hours of April 14th. It was cold, just below freezing that night. The daytime temperatures had been spring-like, but the nights were still cold. He was in his truck, driving down one of the narrow country roads near the farm, and thought he saw a man walking at the edge of a field. It was only a glimpse, he said, but he was sure the man was wearing a bright green shirt and wasn't wearing a coat. He slowed down, wondering who the man was, but then drove on. He was on his way to a neighbor's house. A friend had been sick, and he was going to take care of his morning chores for him. 
According to my contact, his father didn't pay much attention to the news about the disappearance until he heard about the farmer who said he'd been awakened by shouting on the same night he'd seen the man walking by the road. By then, a week had gone by. He later told his son he didn't say anything because he couldn't be sure of what he'd seen, but his son thinks he was lying. He said he believed his father just didn't want to get involved. Was it Bruce Campbell that he saw that morning? I don't know. I also don't have a precise location for the farm the man's father owned, only that it was northwest of town, not far from where the shouting had been heard and, well, in the same area that an unnamed psychic had tried to steer investigators in 1959. I don't know who or what that farmer saw that morning, but I can agree with Chief Flynn, who told the newspaper that the case of Bruce Campbell was, quote, one of the most baffling mysteries that's ever occurred here. The search for Bruce Campbell went on for days. That turned into weeks. It would eventually stretch on into years. The FBI even launched their own investigation into his vanishing, but they had no luck either. Mabelita Campbell reluctantly went home alone to Massachusetts after two weeks of fruitless searching for her husband, but she refused to give up hope. Over the next year, Mabelita spent almost all her savings on private investigators who distributed Bruce's photo and description to police departments across the country. She also offered a $5,000 reward for information, but it was never collected. Finally, in 1967, Bruce was declared dead. A stone marker was placed for him in the Bridge Street Cemetery in Northampton. Gone, but never forgotten. Mabelita joined him there in 2004. She died having never learned what had become of her husband. Well, after all the search efforts were called off and the FBI struck out on the case too, I asked Lauren Hamilton if there was anything that could still be done about the case of Bruce Campbell. I mean, is the case still open or was it officially closed after he was declared dead? Right. Uh, it was officially closed uh, when he was declared dead. Um, doesn't mean that it couldn't be reopened. Mm -hmm. uh, what it would take, obviously, is, is uh, some pretty good leads. Uh, maybe, uh, like you had mentioned, um, the finding of uh, some bones, finding of a body, which dental records, they tell me the, um, unless, this is a gray area, Unless there's a crime or a suspicious uh, nature, dental records are destroyed after six years. Mm. But now um, uh, the bones could still be examined and still uh, uh, DNA attracted. Yeah, because I mean, that was kind of my question. I mean, theoretically, let's say that somebody found human remains in Jacksonville now that, that maybe could be Bruce Campbell. I mean... Uh, you know, I you, you mentioned probably not dental records, but maybe the bones. And how, my, I guess my big question is, is because this guy is not some famous person with all kinds of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, family members and things still looking for him, what, what could be done now to even try to nail it down? Yeah, you would, um, again, even if, if, even if the bones were found, um, is has a crime really taken place mm -hmm. uh, you know and you would have to have a family member uh if any are around uh yeah. still press that issue still yeah. still insist that issue and and 
uh, you're right, growing up here, uh, you know, obviously this was three years before I was born, but when I uh, grew up here, uh, the hotel was still there. Mm -hmm, sure. And uh, I, I don't remember what the circumstances was, but I actually stayed at the hotel one one time. Uh, and the stories were there, you mm -hmm. know, but now as the years go by, the stories turn into legends and, and they grow and they grow. But, uh, no, if, if we had, uh, if we had anything solid to go on, we would certainly follow that. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, that's great. It, uh, like I say, it told me some things that I didn't know because <laughs> I was looking this up and I was like six years. Are you serious? Yeah. The case of the man in the green pajamas turned out to be the last significant case of Jacksonville Police Chief Ike Flynn's career. Just weeks after the vanishing, Flynn retired and Charles Runkle was promoted to secede him. Runkle later recalled, even though he was no longer a cop, Ike never let the case go. He worked on it in his own time for several more months, stopping in at the station to see if any new clues had surfaced. Well, they hadn't. So he kept looking on his own until he was diagnosed with cancer and passed away a short time later. Chief Lynn was haunted to his grave by the missing man. And there were a lot of people around town who never forgot Bruce Campbell either. When something like an unsolved disappearance happens in a small town like Jacksonville, it's no surprise when theories and rumors start to run wild. Whispered stories claim that Bruce had arranged for a girlfriend to meet him at the motel that night and whisk him away to a new life. Of course, there's no proof of that, and it seems unlikely. Why would she follow Bruce to Illinois, to a town where he'd never been before, and go through an elaborate ruse when he could have easily have done the same thing back home? A few weeks after Bruce vanished, a woman at the church Bruce Jr. attended in Jacksonville, the First Presbyterian Church, started accusing another woman in the church of being the girlfriend and being involved in the disappearance. Well, Chief Runkle stated this woman was well known for mental instability and certainly didn't offer an explanation as to how Bruce Sr. knew a woman from a town he'd never visited. Well, some suggested that Bruce had committed suicide, never explaining why his body was never found. Bruce Jr., as well as friends back in Massachusetts, assured the police that his parents had been happily married and his father had no history of depression and no financial worries that might have caused him to consider suicide. Another possibility is that there was foul play involved, likely something to do with debts or someone unhappy with the advice that Bruce had given them about the stock market. Or worse, perhaps about missing money or underhanded dealing that no one would expect from the mild-mannered Bruce Campbell to be involved with. The theory suggests that Bruce had faked his exhaustion and illness so that his wife wouldn't be suspicious about him slipping away from the motel in the middle of the night. He wanted to smooth things over with his client and didn't want his wife to know there was any trouble between them, especially if this client was on the sketchy side. He likely expected to be returned to the Sandman Motel that night and would blame his absence on his illness or maybe sleepwalking. This might explain why he didn't get dressed. He didn't think he'd be gone very long. Boy, did he get that one wrong. Bruce left the motel, met up with the client, and was unexpectedly driven out into the country where he argued with his abductor or abductors. This would explain the voices the farmer heard that night. 
Perhaps he even escaped from them for a short time, which is when he was spotted on the road by my contact's father. When he was recaptured, though, he was killed, and his body was taken away or was disposed of in some shallow grave, deep hole, or heavy woods on the north side of Jacksonville. This is actually a plausible theory, but it still leaves one thing out. Bruce was a stockbroker in Massachusetts. Why would a client, even a shady one, follow him all the way to Jacksonville to confront him about market losses, theft, or anything else? Wouldn't that have been easier to do back home in Northampton? Maybe, or maybe not, especially if the client had planned to get rid of him all along. Well, could any of this be true? Who knows? I don't know, and neither did Chief Charles Runkle. He also passed away with this case still unsolved. As far as mysteries go, he once said, Jacksonville has never seen anything like this doggone thing. It'll probably never see anything like it again either. Absolutely nothing. No clues. Nothing was ever found. It's just the darndest thing. And that I have to agree with. The story of Bruce Campbell really is just the darndest thing. He simply walked away on the dark streets of Jacksonville that night and was never heard from again. Will he ever be found? Maybe. Because as I said when we started the story, I still think he's out there somewhere, hidden away, north of town just waiting to be found. Either way, I'm fucking tired. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, all right, are we good to go? Sure, I'm ready. Oh, God, as soon as I see that, I yawn. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm ready, though. All right. Well, thanks for coming back for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. Okay, I, I didn't know, know if I know. needed to do a dramatic. We'll figure it out. Um, okay. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, until he becomes a ghost, author, <laughs> historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Mr. Troy Taylor. Um, and don't forget um, smug, condescending liberal in there also is in the description. I so, figured that was implied. As one cowardly person who refused to, to <laughs> leave their name said that I was, so... <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, how are you doing, man? How's I'm doing. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. So it's uh, it's nice to be back after taking a short break. Although, really, I mean, can we call it a break? Because we really it never stopped working. So, yeah. so it's like, oh, you didn't you did you take off a month at the holidays? Um, just because I didn't have any events or tours does not mean I was not working. So I feel like yeah. I talked to you more, probably more <laughs> and more on the phone during that like, month of off time than we normally do. I, I don't know why. I guess I don't know. This stuff out. kept coming up. We kept trying to figure out. So yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we got hey, we got to hang out yesterday for yes. about twenty minutes. About twenty minutes. Yeah. And, when we uh, were record Equip and then we weren't going to record so yes equipment yeah. uh, malfunctions i guess yes. and uh but hey it was nice to nice to come yeah. out of town nice to see you ship, yeah. ship for a minute um and now we're back recording yes, we the first back. episode of season seven yes which has been an adventure um putting it together so 
Uh, I mean, we don't have to start talking about that yet, but it, it was a bit of an adventure. So yeah, this is not our standard episode, obviously. So oh no, yeah, this one's definitely different. And, yeah, uh, we're we're you know we probably won't, we're not going to follow that that same no. format a lot. No. but we want to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, at know? least for the to kick it off for the season. So yeah, uh, because like I said, as Cody said, we had a little maybe a little time on our hands uh, during our our time off um, because we were we were working on other things. But even so, I had time to plot out this you know messed up episode that I decided to do. But you know we, we were also working on the Haunted America conference because that's kind of the big thing at the moment. This mm-hmm. which is why again I never really had any time off uh, because the tickets uh, are already on sale. Uh, they went on sale during our break uh, for the Haunted America conference, which is coming up June 23rd and 24th of this year. And I know we talk about it every year uh, for the podcast. When things kick off, we do a live record, you know, we do some recordings and interviews at the conference and things too. But um, this one is going to be a little bit different. For one thing, we've already set a new record for the number of tickets sold in the first week. Um, This will be the biggest one we've ever had, especially since we're moving to a new location. Um, General admission tickets are flying. Um, After hour stuff, a whole bunch of them are already sold out in like two weeks. Um, So if you're thinking about coming, you, you really need to get it in gear. Um, we'll, we'll be in Alton this year, um, but we are moving to a new location. We will only be using the Best Western Premier as the hotel for guest rooms during the conference because we're having the event at Lewis and Clark College in Godfrey, which is just a few minutes from downtown Alton and from the hotel as well. So we have theater style seats. I know I've talked about this, uh, an actual stage, uh, professional AV and sound, not like, you know, me up there fumbling with someone's computer yet stuff trying to, the in, trying to help, to work yeah. cody trying to help me um so i mean we're also the, the vendor space we've got is uh the same size as the entire conference space that we had vendor room and conference room combined at the bwp that's just the vendor room so we have a lot more room this year and plus the college which used to be monticello seminary has its own resident ghost Harriet Haskell. So if you want to know that story, um, get a copy of Haunted Alton, look it up. So yes. anyway, um, but but do get signed up because this is always a great conference. It's going to be fun, but I think it's really going to be something special this year. And we, we really want to see uh, as many of our listeners there as we can possibly see. Uh, so you can check that out at ghostconference.net. And then, of course, in like two weeks is Dead of Winter. Uh, which is our February so 11th event at the Mineral Springs. I mean, it's everything all at once here. But um, we started this winter event like as a charity for food pantries in 1999. Every year it's gotten bigger. And that's honestly um, thanks to the generosity of the people who attend because the daytime event is completely free. The only thing we ask you to do is to bring um, a donation of a canned good or a non-perishable item. Um, and, you know, we, we, um, we're always, people always asking, what do you mean by that? Well, canned goods, I think, you know, is self-explanatory, um, mm-hmm. but dry goods like mac and cheese, um, you know, dried soups, toilet paper, paper towels, soap, sanitary items, light bulbs. I mean, you wouldn't believe the kind of things they need at the food banks, especially 
you know, a couple of months after Christmas when people are kind of tapped out on, you know, um, you know, general donations and things. seasons, they, of, season yeah, of giving they, is yeah over. the seasonal stuff. They, they've used up all that stuff. And so we started putting this thing in February because they always need extra stuff. So anyway, come join us. It's a daytime event. We've got speakers vendors room um cody and i'll be doing a live recording and like i said the the daytime event is completely free we've got just a handful of spots left on some of the after hour stuff but you can check that out um if you go to americanhauntings.net you'll see the the thing for dead of winter there and um it's february 11th alton illinois mineral springs hope to see you there yeah, it's a great event. And just I, I usually tell people, like, think of if you've ever been trapped in like a snowstorm or something like that, or like <laughs> electricity goes out. It's like, think of the stuff where like when it's the fan, you're like, I really wish I had more of this. Get yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's you know? the stuff that people need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a great event. Um, it's, I, I can't believe it's been going on for so long. 1999. I wasn't even yeah. born yet. Yeah. And it, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a long right. running thing. I love it. <laughs> Uh, well, Troy, we have a, a good a listener review that I'd like to share. Okay. This, this is titled Podcast I Didn't Know I Needed, and it's from Disgruntled Comboer. And initially when this popped through and I saw the name of the person, I didn't see the <laughs> review. I just saw the name. I was like, ah, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> Here we go. But it turns out to be a very positive review. It says, was searching around for a new paranormal podcast and stumbled across American Hauntings. The history of locations is what I enjoy most of um, – the history of locations is what I enjoy most of May haunted slash paranormal program. And this podcast scratches that itch perfectly uh, started in mid mid woods and fields. And I'm working through the new Orleans season now. Oh, okay, cool. So they starting with some of the good ones and working back through some of the other good ones instead of starting right <laughs> before they get to the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, so thank you so much um, for that kind review. And I'm happy that you found our podcast. Troy, are you ready to talk? The first real story out of um, season seven. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that I've done nothing but talk about this thing for like two weeks now. So mm -hmm. uh, between, you know, going out, recording, talking to people and, you know, doing the the in studio uh, interview or studio, my in, in office <laughs> interview with Lauren Hamilton and stuff. I feel like this is all I've talked about. And uh, I've got to do a radio show uh, the day after this comes out. Uh, about this story again so yeah busy guy yeah, yeah. well so, it's uh it's a cool story so it is a cool story i was wondering with um so if if people listen to the first part of the show you'll hear troy doing his own little little interview um for a little bit and i'm curious um are you just publicly trying to kind of sh slowly shove me out of the picture think you can just do everything <laughs> no no write no, the monologues and no, ask the questions no um, no i just did that we need to talk um, yeah right no I, I did that because well i mean it's the reason that i did this episode the way that i did is because it's it's a hometown story and i mean i i live here so i thought it would be fun to you know, do something where I, I guess fun is always a, it's always a bit <laughs> right. to use, but to an interesting right story to use because it's so local and I'd been hearing about it for so long and, um, you know, getting someone from the police department and things to talk about the story I thought would be interesting too, where I could ask some of the questions like, like you can ask, but to ask them directly as part of the story, you know no, what I, I mean? I, love, I, I, I won't it. do it again. I, I, um, 
it was just one of those um, things that I, I thought would be kind of cool. <laughs> so yeah. I won't do it again. I didn't mean, yeah, to yeah, get no, on your I turf. didn't mean to step on your toes there. So, <laughs> so no, it's all fun and games. I loved it. Um, the man in the green pajamas. So Bruce Campbell, isn't, isn't that the evil dead? Yeah, guy? I know. It's so you <laughs> can't, sorry. it's not the guy from evil. Dead. It's, I know. It's um, just, I, I know, but it is hard to, every time that would come up, I'd go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and so yeah, it's uh, groovy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. You know yes. who it says. I love that guy. But. Disappears from the old Sand Moon Hotel in Jacksonville in April 1959. Uh, you said you went there now, and it's now a Casey's. I had to ask yeah. you, did, yeah. did you get a slice of pizza? Because as we I have, about, that's where it, I normally pick up my Casey's pizza when I order it, is from that particular one. So, no, that is no business being as good as it is. It's I know. I don't pizza. understand it either, but it is. So Yes. But um, yeah, it, that's the one I normally get it from. On Walnut, exactly where the Sandman used to be. Um, it was interesting to me. It was long gone before I ever came here, but it was interesting to me that uh, Lauren mentioned that he had stayed there when he was a kid, uh, had stayed at the oh, right. hotel, which was pretty cool. And it's I, cool of course, name. I talked to a lot of people who remember it here in town. Obviously, it was just gone before I ever came here. Sure. Yeah. And it's a cool it's a cool name for a hotel. Also, um, I like that. But, you, you know, you heard you heard the monologue not too long ago, so I won't go through that. But a man disappeared from here, and it seems like they drove. It's a family drove twenty hours to be here. Um, it says Bruce shows up, and he seems visibly exhausted. You said rational but disoriented, um, and I think it's something I wrote down. It said, "Spoiler alert!" It said, "I've been a in my day, I've been a high functioning um, a lot of things, and if I am rational but disoriented, then it's only a matter a matter matter of time before I am completely no longer just, rational. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's totally right. Um, and you t talked about kind of this guy's physique, you know, six foot five, hundred and eighty pounds, um, which is just, a, just yeah. like string bean kind yeah, of. Yeah, no kidding. Guy. Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, but I guess the point of it was is I wanted to dig in so deep into his description. I mean, you yeah, kept talking about him being tall, but I wanted to lay out what's in his draft records because uh -huh. I mean, man, I really did some deep dives on this thing. I I've sure. never gotten this far into this story before. Um, as far as the interviews that I did and, and some of the other stuff and really digging into his family history was was really interesting. But mm -hmm. uh, the stuff that I was able to find about the family and stuff, but I wanted to lay out exactly when he registered for the draft at age 40, six foot five. That's tall. Yeah. That's tall yep. now. Definitely tall then uh, when people were a little shorter. But, you know, here's a guy who weighs 180 pounds. That's pretty thin for you know but my point was is that he would have been so distinctive of course you yeah, know stand like, out yeah because he had like a slight limp i couldn't figure out i couldn't find where the limp came from so i don't uh -huh. know um why he walked with a limp i couldn't find that anywhere uh but he walked with a limp he's six foot five he's wearing bright green pajamas um you know, people would have seen him if you'd see Slenderman walking down. Yeah. yeah, no kidding, right? Strolling down the street, you would have noticed. Yes, but no one did. Oh, that's bizarre. And just one other joke I was going to make was young men. You said young men were finally able to attend McMurray College um, in 1957. So finally, men are able to have our place. Oh yeah, right, <laughs> right. Sorry, to be yeah, no, it's. Uh, Mac Murray had is had a really interesting history. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that. I've had, I think, more fun. To, they they actually closed down a couple of years ago. They finally mm -hmm. are gone now. But the, the college is gone. But um, in their long, long history, there had been like repeated 
disastrous fires at the school. It kept burning down. They huh. started this school and it was a, it was a college for women. And yeah. it had been, you know, like a really like a serious college, not like, you know, oh, we're going to get together and learn how to sew. It was like sure. real studies, which was ahead of its time in the 1840s when it started. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. The building kept burning down. They never, and for whatever reason, every time I would write about it, I would go, and they still had no insurance. They never bought insurance. It <laughs> kept burning hell? down. So finally, they were going to close this place down. And then this senator, his daughter had gone there, um, named Mac Murray. And she had loved the school so much, he decided, he had all this money, decided to like rescue them because they were always on the verge of shutting down. Yeah. So he rescued the college, got it going again, kept it. They changed the name, kept it going for a long time. And then in the late fifties, they finally started um, letting men attend too. But like none of the men, they couldn't be in classes together with the oh, women. Okay. It was completely separate. They couldn't even eat lunch on the same side of the cafeteria for years. Wow. It wasn't until the sixties that it finally became co-ed. Um, yeah. So it just really an odd little, you know, place, but you know, it, it worked out for Bruce jr. To get this chemistry job there right mm -hmm. after they opened it up for men. And um, you know, that's how they all ended up being part of the search for his father is they liked him. They was a professor. Everybody liked, so everybody showed up to try to help. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So, okay. Well, I'm going to dive into, um, Bruce going going missing, but I, I wanted to ask a couple questions about more of the overall theme and things we'll be talking about um, this season. And I'm curious about not necessarily just the stories that we're going to talk about, but you know, the, with the books you've written and the research you've done on people going missing, you know, out of nowhere. Um, what do you kind of think the breakdown is as far as um, people, you know, wanting to disappear, and that's kind of their whole plan, or a perfect circumstances where uh, some rowdy people are driving by and see somebody kidnap them. You just never know. Just a crime of opportunity versus crazy accidents where somebody, you know, slips and falls, but for some reason their body's just like kind of hidden. Like, what do you think the breakdown is for a lot of these people that just mysteriously disappear, you know? Well, you know, percentage wise, I, I couldn't give you an exact percentage, um, but in all the, the stuff that I've worked on over time, as far as collecting a lot of these stories and reading about them and researching them, I find that people going missing, say, in the wild, you know, getting into an accident and chances of finding somebody like that in a situation out, outdoors or, mm -hmm. you know, and that is slim, uh, mostly just because, you know, there's just too many things that can happen to your body when it's left out in the wild like that. Mm -hmm. um, I find that foul play is probably the number one cause of people going, except for maybe people who just purposely disappear, which is a lot harder to do now than it was. I oh, mean, sure. we'll talk about some cases like that throughout the season where people did purposely walk away. Yeah. And um, back then you could do that. You could ease more easily do that 75 years ago. Um, you can't do it so much anymore. It's, yeah. it's a lot harder than it used to be. Not impossible but harder than it used to be. Um, but I think foul play is probably the number one reason why people are taken, are murdered, dumped, and hidden mm -hmm. so well they're just never found. I mean, like I said, there's there's going to be a lot of different things that are kind of come up through the season. I tried to, you know, to spread it out. So, so it was a lot of different things happening. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's hard to put a number on it. I, I find sure. that a lot of cases with, and even when it comes to foul play, especially as we get more into a uh, more contemporary uh, than than some of the older stories, that a lot of times people that disappear are often living. Um, I, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but living kind of on the edge, dangerous kind of life, uh, involved in drugs, maybe involved peripherally in crime, right. things like that. Bad things happen when you get involved in things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I run across a lot of cases where, you know, people will talk about the a young person, especially that, you know, just disappeared one day and they they think probably they were murdered, but nobody ever found them. And not every time, but I'd say probably 75% of the time, it'll come up that they were either A, involved in drugs or B, involved in with bad people. Sure. And it's not it's not their fault. Obviously, they're not to blame for the fact that they went missing. It's just that it seems sometimes lifestyles contribute mm-hmm. so much to disappearances, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I I was thinking about um, these interviews I watched with uh, Richard Kuklinski, the uh, the Iceman murderer, hitman. And he was saying how I think he was uh, somebody correct me if I get it wrong, but you'll get the gist. But he was going from like uh, Jersey to Florida or something like that, you know, driving some route. And um, somebody starts kind of giving him grief on the highway, flipping him off, all that stuff. So they pull over. And uh, Kuklinski pulls over and he kills both these people and then just takes off. And the cops and and it's kind of in the middle of between going from New Jersey to Florida, you know, Mm -hmm. so somewhere in this huge stretch. And he tells the cops years later, once he's caught and they were like, we had no idea who did that. We were never going to figure it out. And I I wonder, it's like, imagine if he had just kidnapped those people instead of killed them or whatever. It's just a random thing that happens. You're never going to figure that out. Like you're very much like, and I wonder if some of these things, yeah, it's just like that perfect opportunity comes up. I'm sure it Um, happens a lot. You know, people just vanish and you will never find them unless the person confesses, Yeah, you know, the person who did it. So, um, you know, it, it does make it, you know, it's fascinating, but in a in a horrific kind of in a can't look away kind of way. A mm-hmm. lot of these stories are like that. A lot of them are just so sad and so tragic. And I think this one definitely was. I mean, this this ruined uh, definitely ruined his wife's life and I'm yeah. sure his sons too. Um, because, but again, we don't really know what happened. I mean, I I threw in a theory, you know, yeah. the theory about maybe he had some kind of dealings going. But again. The reason I came up with that theory is because so often you find people mixed up with a bad crowd, with a criminal element. And I've always wondered if that's not what happened to him. There's there's two things. Either he really was delusional and wandered off and fell in a hole somewhere, which is possible, or somebody took him out, which Uh would be my guess. But why is the question? And why in Jacksonville, Illinois, when he's from Massachusetts? I mean, it just doesn't really make sense. I mean, yeah. that's the big glaring hole here in even that theory. Yeah. Well, but see, uh, the, the thing of that is maybe somebody did it in Jacksonville from Massachusetts because looking back at it, you'd be like, it just doesn't make sense. And maybe, yeah, well, like, that's, that's true the, too. I mean, it would have perfect... been easily easy to follow him here, but yeah. I mean, this is a place he'd never been before in his the entire life. Um, that's why when some of these stories came up about, oh, it must have been a girlfriend. Well, unless she followed him all the way from Massachusetts, which, again, really makes no sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the, the crazy lady that was accusing some woman in 
Bruce Jr.'s church of being the girlfriend. And, and he's like, okay, well, I've never met him and he's never been to Jacksonville before. So that'd be a little difficult to do. Um, so I don't know. There's just so many bizarre things about this story. Sure. I mean, especially him taking almost nothing. And, you know, what, do you think he was just kind of delirious because the 20 hour drive? Do you think that's. I don't know, man. I, um, I guess that the, the part of that for me, where I started, I mean, sure. I mean, it could obviously could happen. You could have been dehydrated. Who knows? Yeah. You know, all kinds of things could happen, but he never really had any health issues. I mean, he didn't have any. So that just seems so odd, um, which is why, you know, it, for me, it kind of contributed to the theory that, you know, it was a bit of a put on that he really wasn't as tired as he claimed he was. He just needed to be around the hotel because he was planning on meeting somebody. Uh-huh. I mean, just I, a nervous that's, just a, that's just a, I don't know, but I'm yeah, just sure. throwing that out there, you know. Yeah, well, dang, I'm thinking. Um, I've told you before, Mark Hoppus from Blink-182, why he had that bright pink base, he said, so he doesn't lose it in the snow. Yeah. I'm thinking I need to get my pajamas like some kind of crazy reflect. <laughs> You'd think, you know, some green ones would be good enough. Well, you but... would think because they were bright green, apparently, I, yeah. I, you know, which sounds like a poor fashion choice, even for, you know, <laughs> sleepwear to me, but whatever. So yeah, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about trying to see try, now that I'm getting older, maybe I can bring some pajamas into my wardrobe, like legit pajamas <laughs> like with the hat. Don Draper ball. pajamas. Oh, okay. Well, you're talking about like Ebenezer Scrooge pajamas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was my thinking, house a little I was, this is, this is what I was picturing. And this is like Don Draper kind of pajamas, you know, okay. era, you know, which is except they're bright green. And I don't think Don Draper would have been caught wearing bright green pajamas. He's but, you know, too classy, too, too classy. cool for that. So, uh, so the cops search, they find, nothing there's a huge search nothing on the man in the green pajamas eventually even listen to a psychic um you hear some secondhand stories about maybe a, uh, a farmer who just didn't really want to get involved and like you said the wife just keeps looking for the rest of her life Ugh. yeah i just can't i mean imagine. she like exhausted according to the fbi she had exhausted her savings with these private detectives who yeah you know were searching but again you know, they're not searching. I don't think they're searching in the right place. They're, you know, putting out bulletins all over the country as if he just took off. And I don't think he ever, I really honestly don't think he ever left Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think his body is still here somewhere, somewhere outside of town. I honestly do. I really think he's still here. I think he died that night and his body is here. So, mm. well, if somebody hears this and remembers being a small child and their grandparent telling them a crazy story or some you know yeah. weird thing let us know we'd love to yeah. finally yeah. wrap this one up yeah um, i've heard a lot of i've heard a lot of theories about this story but uh around here but nobody really knows anything no more yeah. than, than what you know what i tried to find and and i you know i know people don't know anything about the family or anything because that that was stuff i was able to find mm -hmm. uh, on my own and so that's not anything i'd heard but a lot of the as far as you know, where, you know, he might've ended up. There's all kinds of theories, but I don't know. There's a lot of open land out there north and northwest of town. I mean, it's just farm fields for miles and miles and miles. He could be anywhere. It says that more than 600,000 people go missing annually. Yeah, it's and, higher than that. And this is, let me see, by state, and approximately four, this is just in the U.S., but approximately oh, okay. uh, 4,400 identi unidentified bodies are recovered each year. That's just, I, <laughs> that's those numbers. A lot. I know. 
that doesn't make any sense. There's so, well, there's so I many. Think a I mean, lot of those are probably identified eventually. Sure, probably, sure. They're found not knowing who they are, but they're probably identified at some point. Of course. Yeah, and this so, is but just. I'm, you know, I'm still waiting for someone to go, you know, to come up with human remains, which is what I asked Lauren. I'm like, so what if somebody does? I mean, mm -hmm. what do we do? You know, and he's like, well, you know, we'll do what we can. So, right. Yeah, know. which is uh, probably not a lot. I know. Well, and that's the thing when you're talking about a story this old and you're talking about a small town police department. I mean, believe me, we had all kinds of trouble just getting stuff uh, mm -hmm. about it because they just, you know, first they hadn't digitized. Uh, they only digitized back 15 years. Right. So no digital files. There's I mean, it's just it's it's a small town police department and it's mm -hmm. something that happened in 1959. And you know, they closed the case whenever they declared him dead. Mm. I, I wanted to know. And he said, well, you know, can always be reopened. So, you know, maybe if somebody does turn up human remains somewhere, they'll reopen this case. I don't know. Small town police department. You yeah. know what, Troy? I smell a cover up. No, no, no. no. <laughs> don't I think we need to get to the bottom of this. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is just a little taste of what this season's going to be. There's going to be stories that um, are maybe, maybe a little bit more well-known. There's going to be some with some crazier twists and turns yeah. and, and things. And I think it was a great idea. Probably never heard of like this one. So. Of course. Yeah. I think it was a great decision to start close to home. I mean, you know, real close to home for you. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, but I think, I think this season's going to be the most frustrating one for me out of anything because we yeah. will never get <laughs> it to will be for you yeah there'll be no answers i'm i've i've over the years kind of gotten you know to the point where i know there's not going to be answers to some of this stuff but i, th there I think you're going to have a hard time with it yes <laughs> yeah so pretty much i think the end of every episode is going to just be troy going you can ask the question as many Dude, different I don't know. ways as you yeah. want. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, don't know. know. You know. <laughs> uh, well, anything else you want to say about this story before? No, I no. I story? um, I I hope people enjoyed it. Like I said, I I wanted to. It's not a long story, and we don't have a lot of answers. But uh, I did have a lot of fun digging into it deeper than I ever have, and so that in itself has been. Um, that was it. Was a lot of work, but it was fun. You know, it was yeah. fun work uh, to dig into this because it, it kind of made these people a little bit more uh real to me mm -hmm. i suppose so you seem to really uh, anyway. like the process i mean i do i love you the know process. you seem to so live a lot that. of fun yeah yeah it was fun so all right well let's give some quick uh shout outs to our recent subscribers on patreon so thank you so much for supporting the show to olivia aaron caleb Susanna, and kimberly really appreciate it and um yeah it helps us keep the show going so thank you so much yeah it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Troy, I don't have a ghostwriter segment this episode. And oh, yeah. The only email we had, I'm just going to give this a quick throw out. Um, uh -huh. I've never lived in Cottage Hills, so I'm not oh. the right person. So if somebody thought they knew me from cottage hills and lincoln avenue or something i've never done anything other than drive through cottage yeah hills. sorry about that's that, not bud. me sorry guys um, um so, and that's yeah. the thing i i uh, i cleaned out the inbox a little bit at the beginning of the year and we we definitely had some messages um some were just nice like you know love the show some were yeah. really really long so i didn't want to read them but we didn't have anything that was perfect for the ghostwriter segment so i wanted to say um yeah send in some questions sure. comments yeah. emails things like that if you want to talk and um if if they work for the show, then I'll go ahead and include them in this segment. That's American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, 
That's all I got, man, oh, for the first episode of right, season cool. seven. Yeah, cool. cool. Well, guys, if you um, if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. I know that maybe not be where you listen to it at, but um, that's the place that that really does the reviews and helps people to find the show. Um, also, don't forget, if you are signing up for anything, buying books, whatever, don't forget to use the discount code at AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, that discount code is just podcast. Put that in, you get automatically get 10% off. And uh, also, Cody, throughout the shout outs about Patreon, um, we love for you to support us on Patreon. And we always make sure that we're giving something back. We don't just ask you to just, you know, come and support us. Uh, we have a, another podcast series that we do uh, every other week. So in between these shows, we have another show that runs uh, Dead Men Do Tell Tales. And this particular season of that is called Come Prepared to Stay Forever. And it is the Belgunis story. Um, new episodes every other week. Uh, and you can only get it as a Patreon supporter. So uh, check that out. It's uh, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Uh, we love to have you on board. Uh, it is a lot of fun. Uh, they also, people, they, Patreon people got early access to the conference. They get early access to books, to events uh, before anybody else does. So uh, it is worthwhile. Uh, I think if you're, if you're really into it, um, it's something that I think you would enjoy. So yeah, you can get t-shirts yeah. too. Yeah. Um, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Well, this is a, a new outro that Troy has written. I haven't read it out loud yet on purpose because I just wanted to see how it would go. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's, it's slightly, I try, just, it's trying to trim it down. So it's I know, but it's just the, it, it gets ingrained in my brain. So it's like, almost like <laughs> muscle memory. And so now I'm going to have to fight that. And let's, oh, yes, let's, you are. let's, let's yes, see how it goes. Okay. So this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it. And follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or literally anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We are I don't, everywhere. I don't think I put literally in there. So if you're going to read it, read it right. See I'm just the kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> just joking. Oh, the improv part of me wants to uh, <laughs> choke you through the screen. See the website at AmericanHuntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying. <laughs> we promise that we're much more entertaining. That, that sh maybe I shouldn't have said promise. Promise. But I'll yeah. bet we're more entertaining yeah. than working hey, or studying. I'll take that. So. Yeah, flip a coin. Hey, yeah, I do. I did. I did. I have put some videos on TikTok. It'd be kind of fun. I so, have not. I mean, I'm not dancing or singing or anything like that. Not They're yet. Just, you're not. No, I will not be. But thank God, I want We're people gonna, to look at them. But they have. We need to push a TikTok oh. initiative now that I know Troy's on that platform. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until the next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See ya. All right, season seven, episode one. In the bag. In the, In the